This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with award-winning investigative journalist and author Jess Hill. Jess joined me to speak about her podcast series, The Trap, and she explores domestic abuse in Australia, as well as its many insidious forms like coercive control. A content warning here that there will be discussion of domestic abuse and examples of what coercive control entails. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back onto the show, Jess Hill. Jess is an investigative journalist and the author of See What You Made Me Do, which actually won the Stella Prize in 2020. Jess is also the author of a quarterly essay, which was released last year called The Reckoning, and which was looking at the Me Too movement in Australia. Jess has also led a couple of other very important projects, which we'll be referencing today, one of which is a three-part television documentary series on SBS, also called See What You Made Me Do, and uh, The Trap, which is a podcast series hosted by Jess and uh, co-written by Jess, then that's been through the Victoria Women's Trust. And for those who aren't familiar with Jess's former life, she was a producer for ABC Radio and a journalist on background briefing for the ABC, a correspondent in the Middle East, which is when I first followed her on Twitter. So she's got a huge amount of experience in her life and it's an absolute pleasure to be able to speak with her today on such an important topic, which is all about domestic abuse and coercive control. And it's something that Jess certainly has been helping Australians to understand is what is coercive control. And that is one of the key aims clearly in this podcast series called The Trap. So I welcome Jess now. Hi there. And how are you doing? Hi, Amy. I'm really good. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm really pleased that all the work that you've been doing clearly has been leading to a lot of progress from where we were even when we last spoke in 2019. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that there's work coming from so many angles and I think there's been an acceleration of attention in this area of gendered violence and something of a, a boiling over, you know, on uh, certainly on the national stage, I think, you know, last year what year was that 2021 it was um you know as we were still in the grip of COVID like gendered violence was the story of the year um impossible to ignore and I think even with a recalcitrant government um you know at a federal level we've still managed to keep it on the agenda in a way that's um yeah been surprising to me that it just keeps on demanding the attention that it does and so I think that there's a lot that's happened culturally and a lot that has shifted that, that is on the way to shifting, but I, I always waiting for those pennies to drop and for the you know legislation to be put in or for the reforms to actually be actioned uh, because sometimes a lot of talk about it can feel like change. But when you go back to looking at how are things for victim survivors right now who are leaving or who are in these relationships, it's like are things actually different? Or does it just feel different? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it definitely feels different because we've had Grace Tame as Australian of the Year. You know, she's been so vocal, so brilliant. Um, And I know you're on a a panel with her at the Adelaide Festival. And uh, that was such a great conversation, by the way. So I hope people can go back and watch it. Yeah, it was so compelling. But, you know, we have had all these brilliant women across, you know, First Nations peoples and, you know, Grace and Brittany Higgins and um, women with a disability who've been talking at the Disability Royal Commission Mm. recently about their experiences of sexual assault and abuse. So there are so many people coming forward to give their experiences it does have that feeling doesn't it of momentum but Mm. as you say and as this podcast shows when you've been speaking with victim survivors it is clear that there's so much to be done like it's it's actually quite overwhelming when you Mm. hear what their experience is because you think how could this be happening in Australia surely our values aren't compatible with the systems that are in place that as you show in this podcast, clearly are almost perpetuating it. Like Mm. it doesn't seem like it's there to fix it. Well, our values as they are, you know, felt and thought of um, aren't compatible with that. But so much of what we think are our values don't match our behaviours 
And I think that we see that at a state level um, where we see so much of what we think are our values of, you know, police protecting the community, you know, yes, sometimes they do and then other times they really don't Um, and some parts of our community know that more than others. You know, the family law courts, like that, the the value of the family law courts and, and what is stated in legislation is that the child has a right to be protected and yet, you know, we have things like 88% of child sexual abuse allegations made in the family law courts are not substantiated by the courts. So they're not believed, you know, so we have all these values in place that are supposed to constrain <laughs> our, our behavior and to guide us in how we respond to these things. And, and so often they just, yeah, they don't dictate behavior. And I think that's really, that's what I mean about when we see these cultural shifts and some ways in which that's measured is to measure attitudes. And on that, you know, on that notion of values and what are our attitudes, we can get increases in attitudes that seem positive, like more people see controlling behaviour as a form of abuse or more people don't think that husbands have a right to, you know, um, have authority over their wives. And yet the same people who will answer yes to those will also be abusive because the values of individuals, the stated values, and even the deeply felt values will not always match behavior. So that's why, you know, because values are not enough to constrain us, <laughs> that's why we have to have it locked in, in other ways. And, mm-hmm. and one of those ways is legislation and other ways is, is in reform of practice, but an accountability, essentially, accountability at every level from the individual through to the state organs. It's so true. And that's why I think a lot of people say training is just not going to fix it, like Mm. trying to change people's individual behaviours and, you know, increase their self-awareness. That's like one very small part of a much bigger piece. Mm. I want to go to some of the statistics that were in your book and that will lead us into the podcast and these kind of terms like domestic abuse and coercive control. But I kind of wanted to give people a bit of a scale for what we're talking about here, that it's not some small thing that happens to other people. Domestic abuse is experienced by one in four Australian women, accounting for nearly 60% of the women hospitalised for assault. It drives up to one in five female suicide attempts. And then if we look at the number of Indigenous women in prison, 70 to 90% have been a victim of family violence. The list goes on. And then Mm. if we look at the really severe end of the consequences of domestic abuse, of the 87,000 women who are killed globally in 2017, more than a third were killed by an intimate partner and then another 20,000 by a family member. And you say in Australia, one woman a week is killed by a man she's been intimate with. So it's either a current partner or a former partner. Mm. This is really shocking. I mean, you can read out all these statistics and people are appalled, Mm. but then to listen to their stories in this podcast is a whole other thing. But first of all, just so that we get a sense of where you're coming from, why do you use the terminology domestic abuse and what does that encapsulate that might be different from a different term that people could use like family violence? Yeah, sure. I mean, like all of the terms are imperfect. Um, Domestic abuse is imperfect. Um, Other terms that are more visceral, like intimate terrorism, um, I think can be misleading in terms of trying to describe some situations. So we're trying to find terms that will encapsulate the broadest kind of behaviour without being blanded out entirely. And the reason I changed the term that I was using to domestic abuse was really off the back of an article that was written by Yasmin Khan, who works with, the, well, basically heads up a, um, a South Asian support service in Queensland. And what she was seeing is time and again, women, particularly South Asian background, coming in and saying, well, it's not domestic violence because he never hit me. The worst that would have happened is like a cup of hot tea in the face or, you know, like violent acts. But as far as they were concerned, that was not an assault. But what had been happening in the background was horrific levels of coercive control. And Yasmin and others too have seen how the term domestic violence, as much as we've tried to redefine it to include things that aren't just physical, um, to include other types of abuses like financial, spiritual, psychological, that what it doesn't quite capture for a lot of people, things that, that don't sort of, that don't have that physical harm element, that violence 
is a word that is so landed in the psyche as something that must include some kind of physical harm, no matter how much we try to redefine it. And I think that because I'm so often describing coercive control, um, because really that is what the majority of women who seek help are experiencing. It's what the domestic violence sector sees by and large. And that a lot of coercive control will, will feature no physical violence at all. So I felt like to call it domestic violence is just continuing to to really channel people's attention into the wrong um, onto the wrong thing, and to call it domestic abuse will at least open up that conversation. That really, what we're talking about is a far broader spectrum of behaviours. Yeah, it is so broad, and that's something that comes up for a number of the victim survivors is that they say, "I didn't even realise." I was being controlled in this coercive way, coercive control. They didn't know what the signs were, Hmm. um, what it entailed. Uh, They just thought they were in a kind of bad relationship or their partner was stressed um, Hmm. and that they could fix the situation. And also what was quite shocking in the podcast was to hear about the teenagers who are also in these situations of domestic abuse, because as you point out in the podcast, we often think of, you know, the young love in this very idealistic way. It couldn't possibly be happening, you know, to teenagers. Mm. You know, this is something that maybe an adult could perpetrate, but what would kids know? So, uh, you know, could you expound a little bit about how coercive control happens for teenagers and adults? Sure. I mean, Teenagers, the 16 to 24 is the highest risk age group for coercive control. And so many adults who I've interviewed really had it begin um, very early in an early relationship, sometimes with someone their own age, often with with um, particularly guys who are older. And I think the reason why teenagers are so vulnerable both to being victimised but also to perpetrating it is because of their heavy duty, overpowering emotions that come with that first love. And I think we're more likely to sacrifice our independence when we're younger. We're more likely to compromise more and more of ourselves to try to make ourselves attractive to to our partner, to, to win their trust, to keep it going because we want more than anything for this relationship to continue, to brush off things that are concerning, particularly when you haven't had experience and you don't have anything to compare it to, um, it's very difficult. Even very, very experienced people who've had multiple relationships find it difficult to identify, as you've said. But when it's your first relationship, it's even harder. And I think also that obsessive nature, it seems actually quite normal for teenage relationships. So it's even harder to see those red flags. It's becoming even, you know, quite standard for teenagers to really know where each other is at at every moment of the day too because of things like location tracking in Snapchat and, you know, where there's much less private space experienced by teenagers. So really it's this, I mean, it's the same system. The person using the coercive control will adapt it to whoever they're controlling um, and to whatever environment it is in. But essentially it's the same. It's, you know, winning trust or over really overpowering someone with a type of love bombing where it's just like this type of obsessive, full-on displays of love, need for, you know, overt um, types of, you know, displays of commitment. So in a, and in a teenage relationship, that can just be that like you need to be with me at all times, like I, I don't want you seeing friends on your own or they just make it really difficult for you to see friends on their own and it feels like you're committing to a life with them. When they're older, it can be like we want to move in, I want to get married, I want to have kids, that sort of thing. Um, but basically it's a process by which the person's independence and autonomy is overpowered by their partner And it happens via isolation, micromanagement of their activities, surveillance, like just can be relentless text messaging or ongoing sort of expectations that they'll know where they are at all times. It can be actual surveillance apps on their phones, degrading remarks, often sort of jokes about their weight or trying to drive a wedge between them and their supportive connections. So, you know, things like saying, I don't think those friends are are any good for you, they don't understand what we have, or I heard them talking about you and I just think, you know, you should move on to someone else. Those sorts of things, you know, this cuts across adolescence and adulthood, making it difficult for you to access independence, which can be 
making and when you're older making it difficult to access money it can be making it difficult for you to access transport it can be like sort of having a consequence if you choose to go out and do something on your own so if you want to go out on a Friday night with friends there's a feeling like oh he's going to sulk for a week or you know they so there are all different ways in which independence can be constrained then I think you get the threats and the threats can be overt like if you go out tonight I'm going to harm myself I need you to stay home or they can be covert which is just that sense that if you wanted to actually live the way you want to live or if you wanted to see those friends um, that you know that there'd be some kind of consequence either he'd sulk or he'd be shitty or stonewall you so there's just this basic environment being built that feels like there's threat even if you can't put your finger on why you feel threatened, there's confusion, it's all contradictory and essentially a sense that you are starting to lose a sense of who you are. And I hear so often from people who've gone through this, it's like eventually they, they one day they sort of look in the mirror and they don't even recognise themselves anymore and they they wake up in the morning and the first thing that's in their head is not their voice but their partner's and it's like, what would he or she think of if I eat this for breakfast? What will they think if I put this clothing on? What will they think if I go and see this person? And there's this, this process that's been called perspecticide, which is basically that slowly through this process of coercive control and your independence being constrained and overpowered, your perspective is being flushed out and being overpowered by your partners such that you feel like they are actually sort of almost in control of your mind. And that is the hardest thing, often what victim survivors will say, to get that person out of your head. It is so difficult and you feel so degraded. And the only person, for some of these people, the only person who can give them back their self-esteem is the person who took it away and they almost never will do that. They never will see what they did to them. They never will give them that res resolution. And so there's this sense that this person who you thought loved you more than anyone, who th you thought respected and valued more than anyone you'd ever known, saw what a piece of shit you were. And they're the people who know the truth. And everyone else who tries to tell you that's not true, they're just being nice. You know, and it's very difficult to overcome that. It's literally, it's why they use the same techniques in cults. It's a type of thought reform process. And it's like after a relationship like that, you almost need a type of deprogramming. Well, it's like you say that these victim survivors start modifying their behaviours because they're anticipating the yes. response of their partner. There's a really a great thing that I found so helpful, uh, which was like this cycle of violence or abuse that was laid out in the podcast, where there is this idea that there's tension building where the person is walking on eggshells around their partner because they can sense, you know, that something's wrong and they might snap. Then there's a kind of act of violence or abuse when that person has been set off. Um, then there's a, a kind of point of remorse where there are excuses made for their acts that they apologize, but then blame the victim anyway and say, but it was really your fault. You provoked me into doing this. Then there's this pursuit of the person back to say, oh, well, I'll get help. I'll fix it. And then also there's this kind of honeymoon or calm period. I'm not sure how long that might last, but there is a point of resolution briefly and then the cycle then repeats itself and you're back to walking on eggshells and I found that so helpful because it shows that it's so dynamic and that it moves and changes and that also must be so hard for victim survivors to know what's happening when you're kind of getting this like emotional whiplash really mm. through that whole process. Yeah and some people won't have a cycle at all like it'll be unrelenting crap mm. when the trap is really set and there doesn't need to be you know any of this type of like reprieve. But I think what's really important, what people used to think of as a cycle of violence, I think a lot of people would focus on the um, the outburst or the, either the act of abuse or the act of violence. The whole thing is abuse. Every part of it is part of the abuse. And that's the thing is coercive control doesn't switch off at any point, you know, during good times, bad times, all of it is is important. And in fact, you know, that remorse period or the honeymoon period, the alternation between punishment and reward, 
that is actually as intrinsic to coercive control as threats and degradation because it's what it's like those little threads or just little glimmers of hope that it's worth hanging in there to try to bring it back to what they think the relationship really is which is what they started off with and it's become deformed or it's be, or it's there's been stresses or there's whatever has happened to distort it instead of realizing no this relationship that you have now is as real and true as the relationship you had before there's no sort of like going back to this idealized place um it doesn't mean that no one can get past abuse of course they can but it's not like one day this this person's going to wake up and it's just going to magically go back to that place it's that a lot of that stuff a lot of the stuff the coercive control the need for control probably the paranoia the codependency that was all waiting in the wings and intimacy triggered it off and the feeling that from the perpetrator side of thing if we're talking about you know the vast majority of guys who experience this is that that promise of intimacy and their proximity to it brings up all of this these needs this you know fear of shame the you know humiliated fury the need to control the means of engagement that's all just as real as as the honeymoon period was and for some people the honeymoon period will be a total fake they'll be quite highly narcissistic they'll be pathological liars they'll fake the whole thing you know just to get you in control but that's a minority for a lot of people you know that honeymoon period to them was real but it was an idealized form of love and as soon as that honeymoon period started to you know evolve into a real relationship in which compromise is required that's when all this stuff gets triggered off and they don't get to just have this idealized idea of love anymore and at that point it's that is as, as real all of it is real but to overcome the habituation and need for control takes a lot of work and it's not work that the victim survivor is able to do for their partner and too many women and some men too will fall into this trap that I can do it for them I'll just show them another sign of love another sign of compromise another sign of loyalty and it will win them over and it's like there is nothing there is no amount that will win them over there is no amount that will establish that level of trust unless they do the work to learn how to care for themselves instead of being cared for by you. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the perpetrator and that episode in particular because it is, well, I think it's my favourite episode because it is getting into the kind of things you don't want to talk about necessarily or that are really hard to understand, Mm -hmm. which is like why do they do what they do? Helpfully, you point out that there's been kind of a way of looking at abusers and you've just kind of referenced it there that there are these calculating abusers who are knowingly manipulating and degrading a partner to dominate her and they kind of are specifically choosing a partner they know they can control who might be particularly caring or nurturing but they may not be emotionally attached to that woman Mm. in particular they may not have had that kind of deep love experience and therefore you say they might tend towards the sociopathy scale Mm. and then there is this other type the paranoid insecure codependent abuser who as you've laid out is more controlling over time because they're secretly afraid their partner is going to leave. The abuse only surfaces in intimate relationships, you say, because that's where they start to feel triggered about being ashamed, about these feelings of fear. And and they resent their codependency. They resent the fact that mm. they feel like they need their partner, you know, and then they project that resentment onto their partner. Yeah. And this is really interesting to me. This idea, like you say, of humiliated fury, but mm. also masculinity that you bring up and that you speak to the, in particular, men about and the men who run these behavior change programs is how they're kind of almost split in two and that they're meant to model these male masculine behaviors about I'm in control and I'm the tough guy and mm. here's how I perform my masculinity. But they're discouraged from a very young age to show emotion, to even label their emotions so that they know what it is they're feeling to begin with. Mm. And so I wonder if you could share with us some of those thoughts around those men and what the research is telling us is why they're feeling fear and why that is a cause of their need to control. Mm. I think that that 
what some people call halving or the, you know, binary effect where it's like here over here, there are masculine traits like autonomy, strength, logic, you know, independence, self-reliance, that's all valued masculine traits. And then over here you have the feminine traits that are devalued generally, and that is compassion, softness, care, intuition, these types of traits. So, and what seems to happen is, you know, like we've come a long way since like boys don't cry, right? Like, you know, I'm, I've got a four and a half year old. I'm in playgrounds with other young boys and the boys are crying all over the shop. Um, but there's a real sense I still pick this up from, from parents who, who know better than the boys don't cry. But there's still a sense that to be responsible, you have to raise your boy to be strong. And in order to raise your boy to be strong, you need to stop him being too soft. You need to stop him being a mama's boy. You need to teach him to individuate in a way that 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 pressure is not so much on the girls. Yeah. So the problem is, is that boys and girls alike need that time to be with mum and to be totally attached and to need and to be dependent and not to be. We actually, the whole idea of independence and self-reliance is such a sham you know, I fall for the sham. <laughs> I'm like as patriarchal as they come internally, you know, like this whole idea of like independent strength logic, you know, all that stuff. We are a dependent species, right? But we valorize self-reliance and this whole thing of like codependence. Bullshit. Like, I mean, obviously toxic codependence is one thing, but we are actually all codependent. We need each other. But we teach boys not to need anyone else. And we say that that's, that's like basically we infer that that is a sign of weakness. Then they get into a relationship and lo and behold, they need that person because we need. <laughs> and then they hate that about themselves and they feel weak and they feel shame and, there's a, and if they have a personality that is particularly shame-based, um, where there's a lot of deeply unacknowledged levels of shame, whether it be that they had a shaming father, a cold-rejecting mother, maybe they were bullied at school, any number of reasons that they might have a real shame-based personality, when they come in, into this situation where they are needing that person, they can feel extremely vulnerable. And some this is not something they can control. That, and this person will have their own needs. And they can see that as an individual, they might not be able to get their needs met. This person might leave. They might go off and be with someone else. This is not conscious. This is happening at a very subconscious level. But when you have this fear, a resentment at needing that person at all, and then this sense that like deep down, I know I am, I'm not worth this love. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shitty person or whatever. A shame-based personality will hear shame where there was none intended. And so you get these police reports like, oh, well, she didn't put the garbage bin out square to the curb, even though I told her again and again, so I, I whacked her. And they feel like they've been victimised by her actions because she disrespected them. She's like, I just forgot to put it out square. Like, who cares? It's a fucking garbage bin. Like, <laughs> um, but, there's, but they're looking for signs that they are being dissed you know? And so that's, that's where this whole humiliated fury thing comes in, that if I can create a sense of intimidation, degradation, and this is, again, I'm not saying that this is happening consciously, but if I can get a sense like that, that they are below me and that they sort of have to really think about me before they make decisions, then I'm going to feel a lot more in control of this thing that really scares me, but that I also really need. And sometimes when you get that real resentment and really intense shame, you get some really sadistic behaviour from people who are otherwise not disordered but who look for all, you know, intents and purposes like they have some serious personality disorder um, and who will behave in such a way that makes no sense to anyone who knows them to such an extent that those people won't believe it because they've never seen it because they are not in that relationship with that person. That person often will never show that. And that's why sometimes in in some of what some parts of the sector will say, as of the domestic violence sector, sometimes there'll be some talk about, well, he doesn't do it at work, so at home it's a choice. 
And I think there's more nuance in that. It's not to say that there's not choice involved in abuse because, of course, we could be making the choice to go and deal with our own shit instead of projecting it on our partners. But it's not the same as what happens at work. Your boss is not triggering you in anywhere like what your intimate partner is. And I think the only thing you need to prove that is to think about how do you feel with your intimate partner versus how do you feel with your boss? Like I can just say that I, you know, personally, some of the worst parts of myself and the best parts of myself will come out with my partner that I won't show anyone else because they are closer, in closer to me than anyone else is. And they bring out parts of me or I allow parts of myself to come out in that close proximity to intimacy that no other situation will trigger. Yeah. You know, because we're talking about attachment, we're talking about all sorts of things that come up, hope for the future, desires, fears, it's all in there. So if that person is not violent at work, a lot of them are feeling all sorts of things at work, but they are going to come home and express it where it's safe safe for them, pour it into the container that is their partner who will contain all of their worst impulses, who will forgive their their worst behaviour. You know, that's the promise that so many of them think is, is what a relationship is without actually a lot of them really contemplating the person that they're pouring all of this into. Even if that person thinks, I absolutely love this person who I'm treating abominably, they they can lose sight of who they are actually as a human because there's there's so much that they're doing with that partner <laughs> that has nothing to do with the with that person as a human being it's more what does this object mean to me and one of the key issues has been up until very recently is that we do focus on the victim survivor and trying to educate her generally how to leave what to recognize And even that has been kind of quite lacking until fairly recently around coercive control. But now we do have a better understanding of the red flags. But also, I think what I learned in that episode and a quote I really loved from you, a particular question you ask, is why aren't we investigating as a matter of urgency what is making hundreds of thousands of men in Australia feel such a shaky sense of self-worth, feel so impotent and so entitled? Mm. And to me, that's kind of like a... I don't know, mic drop moment because I was just like, well, why aren't we, you know, we're not having that conversation no. in a public way, are we? No, not in a sophisticated way, to be honest. I think that we have, yeah, we've done a lot of work for decades, but particularly since it's been really in the public conversation over the last seven years, really since the murder of Luke Batty is is what sort of really brought it consistently um, into the headlines. So we've done a lot of work on the victim-survivor side of things and there's still much more work to be done because coercive control, as you pointed out, makes itself invisible, you know, so a lot of people don't know whether they're experiencing it. But I still see very superficial readings of why men do this in a lot of the sort of, you know, prevention work where we're still really talking about this as an issue of power and control, where we're still really talking primarily about this as an issue of entitlement, where we're not talking enough about why do so many otherwise normal men need to get their needs met by being not just in control of their partners, but by being sometimes sadistic in their emotional and physical brutality towards them. Like that conversation is not being had enough. The conversation about the origin of this in so many men, particularly those in prison, of trauma, that is not being had enough because there's this sense that if we look into trauma as a, as a root cause of some of this, it will be like an excuse. And explaining heart disease, explaining why heart disease doesn't become an excuse for heart disease, it becomes a way that we can then resolve it and stop it from happening. <laughs> yeah. And I see some frustration from people who've worked with men in this in this space um, in terms of where the public conversation is at and that still we do not have a level of sophistication um, in talking about this. We haven't had conversations about, okay, how do we discern who the men are who are going to benefit from something like a men's behaviour change program or something more intensive? And how do we discern those who will not? And and is there a way to do that? Like these are 
I'm not suggesting that there's like really easy answers to these questions. And there are people who are certainly looking into this. But I just think that on that public conversation level, the fact that we still talk so much about women's safety is a big problem. And the fact that we talk so little about men's violence is a problem. We, We still blanch from really grappling with the nature of what this is. Yeah. Well, you see it even in the budget speech that Josh Frydenberg delivered when it was mentioning women's violence against women and family violence, but it's never mentioning men and the things women get in the budget are relating to their literal safety from being murdered or abused. Mm -hmm. These are all the kind of things. It's not looking at the other, the flip side, Mm. as you say, that's causing it. And then we have all these Band-Aid solutions, one that's quite lacking and that you really do delve into in two podcast episodes is the police as a, an organisation in society. And one episode is about, you know, women appealing to police and how they're treated and whether they how they go in the front desk lottery, as you say, whether they're going to get a friendly ear, someone who is perhaps specialised or interested in family violence or domestic abuse, or someone who's actively disinterested, doesn't Mm. want anything to do with it, Mm. um, is sick of being called out to so-called domestics. Uh, So you've got that part of it. And then also the podcast episode after, which is police perpetrators, Mm. which is, you know, something which really opened my mind. But I wonder, could you tell us about what you learned about in particular the police? I know, you know, there's the court system and a whole other range of issues, but, you know, the really differing experiences that women get and some of the reasons why the police don't seem to be able to deal with the issue that is literally the greatest demand on their time. Mm, Yeah, totally. And I think whenever you see a system where it is really objectively failing to do its job, consistently, to put it kindly, you've got to wonder what are the various inputs that are causing this to happen? Okay, historically it wasn't a policing issue, right? It was a very sort of feminised policing issue. It used to be that it was the female police would go and respond to that, but it was seen as sort of like a lesser kind of crime. Over time, especially with increased reporting and different policies towards arrest and charging, it's become, as you say, pretty much the largest impost on police time. So what we do know, obviously, is that policing is a masculinist culture. And when I say masculinist, really, like it is predominantly white men who are police um, in positions of power and in all positions, really. So they set the culture and it is a masculinist version of that. So we have racism and misogyny that are, you know, very strong, depending on which part of the police service you're in and which, you know, local area command you're in. But as a general vibe, that is that that defines a lot of the culture, unfortunately, still to this day. So there's that. But there's also the setup as to how police respond to domestic violence. So there is the fact that police are performance measured on the number of charges they can get or the, you know, fines they hand out or their stats. Now, domestic violence as a call-out does not align itself with that way of measuring performance because actually the best police in the world may not get a charge but may make that victim-survivor safe through other means or may get accountability for that perpetrator in other ways. So you can't measure success on domestic violence through statistic. And the effect of that on police is that when they are performance-measured, And they don't have those stats and maybe they've been spending an inordinate amount of time with particular families or or people in the community um, because they know that they need that attention because they're unsafe, that they actually suffer career-wise. And that's what a number of the police were saying in this is that, like, you don't progress in your career by attending to domestic violence in the way that it should be attended to. So there's a disincentive already in in the way that the whole thing is structured. There's so many things like that that you have to consider. Like if you're thinking about reform, and I know some people want to just abolish the police, and I get that. I get why people just want to smash systems entirely because they seem sort of rotten beyond reprieve. But it's actually like if you go back to the 1960s and 70s when police did not respond to these call-outs, that was not a utopia. (laughs) Like it was not a utopia having the community just being there to do whatever they could to step in. It was not a utopia having women from the sector having to go to houses with baseball bats and have their either their partner or their teenage son waiting in the car just in case the perpetrator came home. So 
what we have at the moment in terms of the risk that victim survivors run when they interact with police is unacceptable. It's unacceptable that police go to call-outs and look for incidents and then when the victim survivor confesses to using violent resistance or self-defence, decides that's the incident they're going to charge and misidentifies that victim as the perpetrator, all of this is not acceptable. The racism in particular areas of Australia, it's all over Australia, but in particular areas it's, it's more malevolent, is absolutely unacceptable and does not provide safety. Annie Mary Graham, who is an excellent thinker on power, said that, you know, the young Aboriginal boys in community will know the unlawful lawmakers, you know, and there are too many unlawful lawmakers in our police. So there's this really sticky situation that we have where you cannot rip policing out of this situation and yet it is laden with risk and more risk depending on what identities you have. Mm. So what do you do? And that's a question that's really there's a lot, a large amount of disagreement on, you know, and I think that's why I've, I've looked into some of the study that's been done on women's police stations. And it's not to say that you just take women police and well, women police are so much better than men police. You know, like it's the fact that if you have a policing operation where the hierarchies and the performances are measured in different ways to the way that they're measured now, where you remove police from that masculinist culture and you actually give them a totally different mandate in terms of responding to keeping victims safe, but also preventing the violence from happening in the first place, you know, maybe you get a different response. And I guess it's like, well, at this point, why don't we try things? Why don't we just try and see if these different approaches work? Because it seems like in the current model of policing, there is still way too much fail <laughs> after really decades of police trying to improve and I think that whole thing about the lack of understanding of coercive control and the sorts of behaviors of perpetrators and why that elicits a certain behavior in victim survivors is a big part of it because young and old police will go to these call outs or hear stories and get so frustrated by the behavior of victim survivors which to anyone who understands coercive control makes perfect sense but for people who are trying to get results, who are trying to get a statistic, who are trying to get a charge, you know, it will be very frustrating. They'll have to do mountains of paperwork. So they start to really resent it. And so I think that the, all of that, I know I'm sort of just like rambling, but it is such a gigantic system that we need to find the points of intervention or the points of like total disruption by which to, to continue to have some system that's going to respond to people who are in dire need of help and have a greater power to step in over the power of their perpetrator. Yeah, it's so true what you say about disrupting things. You kind of can't keep relying on piecemeal or incremental change or hope that the next review of some particular incident is going to lead to lasting effects. You were saying that there was a US study that showed that 40% of male police officers between 35 and 55 years old are domestic violence or domestic abuse offenders? And so then I think you were trying to extrapolate out, well, then how many, what would the proportion be of, you know, male offenders in the police force and that it could be that or slightly less, but, you know, that's still a large proportion. It is a very large proportion. And they was that, that was a survey that was self-reported. Well, they weren't police officers who had been charged necessarily, but self-reported using violence in the, in the previous six months. And yeah, I mean, the, the issue of police perpetration, what they call officer-involved domestic violence, is really serious. It's, it's perhaps one of the worst traps that any victim survivor can fall into or can, you know, can be brought into. And trying to get out of that and to achieve safety is incredibly difficult. Now, Victoria Police have just set up, a, I think from, from memory, a separate unit that is going to investigate police. It's a very difficult task to have police investigating police not unheard of we have had royal commissions obviously the wood royal commission the fitzgerald inquiry you know like these things have happened but we'll wait and see you know what results that actually brings about but there has been a fiction run by state police services that they are harder on their own perpetrators within the police force than on perpetrators outside the police force and uh, like you don't need to talk to too many victim survivors of OIDV to know that that's just not the case. And I think, you know, obviously this came to 
nationwide attention with the case of Neil Punchard in Queensland, um, who was not a domestic violence perpetrator himself, but assisted somebody to get their the address of their ex-partner, gave them advice on what text messages to send that would be particularly intimidating. This is the sort of culture that is still alive in policing. And if you have a, a reasonably high percentage of domestic violence perpetrators within the police force, those police are often setting the culture. You know, those police are often like the real alphas in the unit. They're going to define culture. So it's really necessary for police, if they ever want to reform culture, that they absolutely do root and branch, you know, flushing out of perpetrators within their own force. Otherwise, that culture is absolutely never going to change. Yep. And then it affects their work in every of kind course. of aspect. And they're committing crimes, like, and being police. Like, you know, it's no different for me. I don't see a difference between that and police handing over paper bags to drug dealers in King's Cross and the sorts of corruption that led to that Fitzgerald inquiry and the Wood Royal Commission. You know, I think that a lot of police wrongdoing and criminal activity has gone from that, you know, sort of corruption, gangland, drug dealing back to much more subterranean interpersonal violence, um, which is a lot more difficult to pick up, but just as corrosive for the police force and, and incredibly damaging for their victims, obviously. Yeah. And I mean, it was really sad to hear a lot of those women in particular who were physically assaulted to say, well, thank God I was physically abused because at least it left a mark that then people believed me. Because often a lot of these men and certainly men who are adept at manipulation, particularly police who are trained to be, you need to have all this proof to not be gaslit into being thinking you have a mental health problem, which I was also surprised to hear you say that even psychiatrists are giving women all these diagnoses of borderline personality disorder mm. when they're actually being abused by their partner. And it's just the symptoms of coercive control, totally. Yeah, this pathologizing of women, it just really yeah, got me so frustrated because it happens in so many other domains. Totally. But I wanted to finish this conversation, Jess, by looking at some of the things that are happening and have happened. So I know there was the New South Wales inquiry into coercive control, but also there's been a coronial inquest into the murder of Hannah Clark and her children. So there's a lot that is happening and has been happening in the news about this issue, given that you are across all the different moving parts. I guess I wanted to get a sense from you as to where you are looking at for progress in that systemic, permanent legal reform and whether you're seeing any hope in that area in any kind of field you know from these coronial inquests from the inquiries Mm. are there things that you're thinking we are or could be making progress on soon yeah so you know the conversation about whether to basically to expand the police investigation from just an incident-based system to one that would include coercive control has been really divisive there are strong opinions for and against There is progress in terms of criminalising coercive control and the fact that New South Wales is committed to it. Queensland has sort of committed to it but not given a time frame. But there is a really important two-stage inquiry going on in Queensland, the McMurdo inquiry. Firstly, it was to ascertain whether it was a good idea to criminalise coercive control. Now the second stage of it is to look into women's experiences with the criminal justice system, both when they're arrested as offenders but also um, as victim survivors. And when I say arrested as offenders, wrongly or rightly. So I think the McMurdo inquiry is is one of the most incredible pieces of work I've seen ever in this space. The first report was incredible in its scope and it did recommend criminalising coercive control. The second report I think will be very, very important in terms of like showing what safeguards are needed if you're going to criminalise and expand that criminal net um, because obviously there are groups of people, First Nations people, disabled, culturally and linguistically diverse people who are already persecuted by police at far greater numbers than Australians of Anglo background And there is a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure that coercive control legislation doesn't become just another thing that that, that further persecutes them. There is that that's going on. I think it depends on what happens in the at the federal election in May, but there needs to be a lot more attention on family law and on keeping children safe in the family law courts because that is really 
there is a lot of reform that needs to be done in that area. And, you know, that's a whole nother kettle of fish to open. But, but basically, um, that is a place that I think we need to put a lot more attention. And the whole issue around funding, there are some things that literally do just need more money. There are some things like transitional housing, places in refuge, counsellors on family violence helplines that you just need to fund better so that they don't turn people away, you know, so that we're not sending women and kids to motels for three or four nights before we shunt them off halfway across the state to the only refuge that has a bed. These are really clear parts of the system that need attending to, that need patching up because they have been neglected for so long. And then there are other things that are not as much about funding but more about practice and about stopping us all like operating in these silos as different agencies, which Victoria has been trying to do since the Royal Commission, you know, which is really to try to get these agencies to work together so that they're not doubling up, tripling up, quadrupling up on the same families and repeating all the same work, but really getting good results, you know, for the money that's invested. So I both feel incredible optimism, especially when I look at the enormous advancement in the understanding of coercive control that's occurred in just the last two years. And then I feel (laughs) the ongoing frustration and a sense of worn downness that most people across the sector feel when they see these basic things that just haven't been attended to yet. And when they see, as you say, like you look at what needs to be done and it feels like this gigantic hill still. And that is while an enormous amount is being done. And I think that the crossover to really see this as something that is endemic in our society, that affects millions of people directly as victim survivors, as perpetrators, and millions others indirectly as close family, friends, relatives, we need to make that paradigm shift to invest in this in the way that it needs to be invested in, not as something that happens to a niche group of people, but as something that is fundamentally corrosive at the heart of our society and that in no way will we be successful as a society until we deal with this properly. And if we can spend five and a half billion on submarines that now won't be built in (laughs) France, then we can spend it on women's refuges. Yeah. Jess, it's just been so wonderful to chat with you and to get a real sense of these issues in a really deep and meaningful way. So I do appreciate your time. And also to say thank you for what you're doing with these great organisations like the Victoria Women's Trust and this podcast, The Trap, because it really has opened my eyes and I know it will for many others if they haven't yet listened or if they have, they'll know what I'm talking about. So thank you for everything you're doing and continue to do and uh, I hope people can check out the podcast and definitely your book, See What You Made Me Do, which is so relevant uh, and all the best for the future as well. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Amy. If this conversation brought up any concerns for you, there are numbers you can call. 1-800-RESPECT, which is 1-800-737-732, or Safe Steps, 1-800-015-188, or Lifeline on 13 11 14. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.